salvation. Uh, my understanding of salvation is what does it mean to be saved? And I have been emphasizing that uh, Paul uses the, the kind of strange word actually justified, which is not an English word. It, they didn't know how to translate it into English. And so they borrowed a Latin word, just who's to forget? Hey, I don't know how you'd say it in Latin. And they made it justified in English. Um, but the word is identical to the Greek word for righteous, which is synonymous with the Hebrew word for holy, which is what a saint is. So you've got a lot of, lot of things going on in this idea of salvation. And this is particularly uh, in the Old Testament in Isaiah, and, uh, and in, in some of the, uh, the Torah, the first five books, God says, be holy either as I am holy or because I am holy. But that's not an imperative in, in the Hebrew. It's not a commandment. He's not saying you must be holy. I mean, he's saying you will be holy because I am holy and I have made you my people. That's the idea. And that carries into the New Testament. See, he's fulfilling his promise. You will be holy because I will make you holy. And so the question the book is asking is, I think we need to rethink saving faith because the question I'm asking is, when does God make a sinner holy and how? Does God make a sinner holy? And my argument is that these two questions are two separate questions that need to be carefully answered separately. But they, they aren't answered separately and they aren't carefully uh, delineated in the American evangelical world. Why? Because... This question was answered in the heat of a debate that began in the 1400s and carried into the 1500s and in 1517 created a cataclysmic event known as the Protestant Reformation. Because at the time, the medieval church was teaching when was, for most people, was when you were done in purgatory, right? You know, you're purified through life by acts of penance, which the reformers, Martin Luther and, and company, saw and understood to be a system of works righteousness. You were actually working to remove human sin, where I, I can see where they got that idea from what was being taught and especially by what was being practiced. And so they came and they answered the question, when, when a sinner develops faith in Christ, that's when God makes you holy. Well, I mean, we don't agree with that. And so we jump all over that. And we, we try to converse with them and argue with them, if you will, 
trying to convince them that that's the wrong answer to the win question. And my, I, I would want to caution us uh, about entering into that conversation on that basis, because the 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 more fundamental flaw in the in the teaching, in my opinion, is they use the answer to the when question to also answer the how question. How does God make a sinner righteous? By the sinner's faith in Christ. Now we have a problem, in my opinion. Uh, we have a serious theological problem. Because you haven't really relieved the, the issue. I mean, the issue under medieval Catholicism was, how do you know you've done enough acts of penance? How do you know you've done enough to work off all of your sins? Well, you didn't. You only knew when you died and you got to, you know, the, the next phase and God, I guess, announced how long you were going to have to serve in purgatory to work off the rest. And that's a terrible system that is unbiblical to its core. But, in my judgment, so is this. If, if me being righteous before God depends on my faith, how has that improved my situation? What if I don't have enough faith? What if I die in the middle of a crisis of faith? What if I'm struggling with my faith? I mean, the whole the whole ball of wax is still on me as a sinner. And the very issue is, I'm a sinner. I'm, in I I'm, I'm feeble. Does this, take Does this take salvation out of God's hand? Does what? The, the sinner's faith in Christ. I think I, it does. It takes it out. It, it, it's, uh, God is God is required now to save us because of something we've done. Correct. Correct. So what I've tried to show you in the last three weeks in class is that Paul specifically talks about eight times in some really significant passages whenever he uses the word justified and, and is addressing this idea of, of a, a sinful human being being justified, he never says it's by the sinner's faith in Christ. That is not how God gets the job done. He says, God makes us righteous by the faith of Jesus Christ. And I'm quoting Galatians 2.16. That's why we have believed into Jesus Christ so that we might be made righteous by the faith of Christ. And we're going to talk more about that tonight. So the question now is, here's what I'm doing. I'm trying to point out this fallacy that occurred. The answer to the when question became the answer to the how question. That needs to be addressed. We need to say, wait, we need to rethink that. The next question I ask in the book is, okay, I have a proposal 
we should answer these questions separately, and they have two separate answers. When, I mean, let's talk about when God makes a sinner righteous after we've talked about how. Because once I can get someone to agree that the how is answered in Christ, by Christ, through Christ, now the when question becomes easy. When? When a sinner is transferred into Christ. And when does that happen? Well, it's a process. It's a process that begins with hearing the word of God and believing the word of God and turning away from the world that the word of God should be telling you is fallen away from God. I mean, any good sermon is going to talk to you about the, the fallen nature. The world has been separated from God because of sin. And if you want to go to the place where God has provided salvation, you have to turn and go to another place. And that place is Jesus Christ. And when you are when you're at that point in your faith, then someone says, well, you need to be baptized into Christ. And that's not something you do yourself. That is a passive act on your part. You don't baptize yourself into Christ. You are baptized into Christ. And there you receive the blessings of Christ. And we talked about that last week. Paul talks about all spiritual blessings are where? In Christ. Not the least of which is the forgiveness of all sins. So where do you want to be? You want to be in Christ. What does he say in Philippians 3? I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness that comes by the faith of Christ. That's what he says. Philippians 3.9, one of his eight passages. So that, and here's the, here's the difference it makes. We come to God, we come in confidence. We have access to God. We have boldness to God. Based on what? Ephesians 3.12. The faith of Him. See, and the English has gotten so messed up because all of those passages say, our faith. My confidence is based on my faith. My righteousness is based on my faith. And I'm saying we are really missing the power of what's being said in the gospel. So now tonight, what I want us to do is I want us to move forward. So there's my proposal. Is it coherent? Does it make sense of these verses? Yes. I mean, I think it does. Is it comprehensive? Does it account for the other passages in the New Testament? Anything in Paul's theology violated by this? No. Was Paul was Paul righteous? Sure. In Christ, he was righteous. Yet in Corinthians, he said that he was the greatest of all sinners. But in Christ, he's righteous. Does that answer your question? Or I'm not sure I'm understanding your question. Can you can you be in sin and be righteous if you're in Christ? No. Because God's not 
counting your sins against you. He couldn't be. Paul's talking about his past, not his current. And he says it's the greatest of all sins. That's what I think. Other questions? I don't know if Jeff's thought was, as a sinner, you know, can I be in Christ and be righteous? And I mean, obviously, because we all are all our lives. But if we're in Christ, then sins are forgiven. Right. By covenant, God is not holding this. He is not taking account the sins of his covenant people. He couldn't be. He would have to do one of two things. He would have to, when he made us righteous in Christ, he would also have to empower us to never sin again, which he didn't do. I mean, Paul, what did Paul say? I got a thorn in the flesh. You can think that's eye trouble or whatever. I mean, I think the wording is he, he had moral issues. He had moral flaws. He had flaws in his character that caused him to sin. There you go. <laughs> Romans 7. And, and what did God say? My grace is sufficient. And the, 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 the wrestling that you continue to do with sin serves a purpose, Paul. It keeps you humble. Betty, you had your hand up. Doesn't God look through the blood of Christ and just see us White as snow. Absolutely. Very good. So what about the passage where it says, as a dog returns to its own? Yeah, I think you can. Yeah. So you're, you, are you getting at once saved, always saved? Is that what you're? Well, that's my question. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm fishing around for this. I'm, I'm that conflict, you said, does it account for all of Paul's teachings or all the theology of the New Testament? Right. We're told that, you know, you, you, you go back to the sin that you left. Yeah. So do we stumble? Do, you know, do, do I fall off the Christianity wagon and try to get back on? Is, is that an effort on my part? Right. Okay, I see where you're coming from now. And Scott Drexel asked me this question several weeks ago, right? And what did I tell you? That's book two. Because I'm already over the limit on words for this book. But that is book two. Because you remember I said, I found nine things nine human activities that make up the, the process that we should go through to become in Christ. And the final one is Revelation 2.10. Be thou faithful unto death. What does that mean? And that's where I'm going to flesh out in a second book, a, a follow-up to this book. Do I have to wait? Well, sorry. Just don't be sinning. There's a difference be between sinning and rejecting God and rejecting sure. Jesus. There, so I would think you're under grace, forgiveness of your sins, continually walking when you're walking in Him. But if you walk out of Him, not by sinning, but by rejecting Him, then you would be out of Him. Here's my short answer to the question. What sin can I commit that will make me fall from grace. I don't want you. Well, that's not a repentant spirit. No, it's not an unrepentant one. I don't want you anymore. Say it, Don. 
I don't want you anymore. I reject you. And what's what's Paul's? Why is Paul foaming at the mouth, hoping that the the people who are agitating the Galatians will actually slip and castrate themselves? Pretty strong language, right? Why is he so angry? Because they're walking away from Christ. They're going back to a human system of dealing with human sin. And can Paul we, says, Can we be guilty of that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can the church be guilty of that? Absolutely. I like the passage in Romans 4 8 where he's trying to help us understand the blessing of living under grace as we struggle with our own uh, inconsistencies. And he says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute his sin. Right. Which is like the passage in First John, his blood continually washes us from our sin. And that is one of the blessings, no imputation. Where is that blessing found? It's in Christ. So how do I how do I lose that blessing? I walk away from Christ. And I can walk away from Christ and still be a very religious person. When I'm teaching that you have to do something and you have to do something and you have to do something to make your sins go away. Unless I'm teaching your sins are forgiven. If you die before you say forgive me, they're not even impu- they're not imputed. They never get to the record book. Bonita, I would contend that God's going to give forgive us for having incorrect theology when we're trying. I mean, leaders that are intentionally trying to drive people away, but if there's a Christian that is really trying and just doesn't understand it right yet, God. I agree with you. I agree with you. Okay, so all of Paul's teaching on this issue accounted for, you know, last week we talked about Ephesians 2.8. To me, Ephesians 2.8, if you buy the definition of saving faith that is revealed in the New Testament, that is your definition of saving faith, a sinner's faith in Christ, you have a real problem with Ephesians 2.8. Because Ephesians 2.8 says the faith that saves us is a free gift from God. It doesn't come from human beings. And there's really, you got two choices. Either Calvinism is right, and that's the email I sent out this week, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But you really have two options. Calvinism's right, And God saves his elect based on his irresistible grace and his unconditional election. And there's nothing you can do about it. Or you have to completely ignore the grammar of what Paul says. Because he says the faith that saves you doesn't come from you. It it is a free gift from God. Well, that can't be a sinner's faith in Christ. But how did you get that grace from God? 
How do you get it? It's a free gift. Same way you get to every spiritual blessing. Where is every spiritual blessing? And how do you get into Christ? At the conclusion of a, of a process that brings you into Christ. Does that answer your question, Don? No? I, I have no question about the faith of Christ saves us. I have no question about that. My question is, can I get into the faith of Christ without having faith in Christ? No. No. Impossible. So why do you why do we make a big deal? If you have to have the faith in Christ to get into the faith of Christ, let's just go there. That's all you have. I still have to have faith. Right. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. Yes. Is it is it kind of revolving around the crux of which of those two faiths results in salvation? I I certainly have faith in Christ, but I'm not trusting in my faith in Christ for salvation. I'm trusting in Christ's faithfulness for the salvation. Not negating it, that I, I have faith in Christ. It's where I'm placing my trust. Thank you. Couldn't have said it better myself. So why does James say that even the demons believe and tremble? But they they haven't they haven't done they haven't done what God says to do. They're not Christ followers. They don't acknowledge Christ. They're not in Christ. Okay, so keep keep moving, Carl. You want to... the heart of it is Jesus is the source of my salvation. Thank he you. He has solved the problem. My faith, I trust in him. Whether I have good faith, bad faith, or whatever, he's the one. Yeah. And part of the reason I hammer on this is because, you know, we won't get to it tonight, but next week I want to gently show us we've gotten away from that. We we don't emphasize this as much as we think we do. But the back comes later. Okay, so other visions of Jesus. How does this fit? Jesus is referred to as the last Adam. The eschatological Adam, to use a big fancy word. It's simply, the, the, the Greek word for last is eschatos. He is the last Adam. Did anybody go read those articles that I put up? Anybody else? So here's a vision of Jesus that Paul uses that I want to try to flesh out and show you what I'm saying or what's being said. Second, Jesus is referred to as having inaugurated a new creation, which they go hand in hand, but I want to treat them separately. Okay, so let's see how our proposal fits into each of these challenging visions of Jesus. Okay, the last Adam. Paul says this, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And so he's drawing an analogy between the first human being, Adam, and Christ, who he calls 
the second or last Adam. So it is written, and he's quoting Genesis 2-7, the first man, Adam, became a living being, literally soul, that's the Hebrew word nephesh. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So he's drawing, a, he's drawing a comparison. He does an extended conversation of this in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And I sent that to you day before yesterday and sent you some articles to read. To think about that. What is his point? Why is he drawing this comparison between the first Adam and the last Adam? Well, here's what I understand. First of all, let's, let's understand the worldview of Saul of Tarsus. He's, he's walking along the road to Damascus, and suddenly his life changes radically, correct? And when he reflects back on that, he draws a distinct dichotomy between the before and the after that experience, okay? Before he had encountered... The Christ, which is what? A resurrected human being. Paul encounters a resurrected human being. And based on his understanding, because he was very educated in, it changes his life. And so afterwards, as he reflects on that, he uses terminology like uh, old man, new man, outer man, inner man, physical man, spiritual man, old creation, new creation. Old Adam, new Adam. So he's, here is the first Adam. I did this backwards in my mind, practiced it and rehearsed it, so I'm going to have. So this Adam compared to this Adam. So this world, this creation, this realm, this age is in stark contrast to this one. And that is, that is underlying all of Paul's theology. And so as we said last week, right at the end, I'm, and I'm quoting from this book here, this Richard Hayes, and this is Luke Timothy Johnson's preface to Richard Hayes' book. He offers the daring thesis that what appears explicitly in Paul's arguments, like in Galatians and Romans, is really directed by what seldom appears explicitly and directly. I mean, Paul is addressing specific problems. This is what uh, Johnson is saying Hayes is trying to get us to see. But what is underlying Paul's arguments is this bigger story. The world has changed. The age has changed, etc. And 
What's always present implicitly is the story of Jesus the Messiah and what he accomplished. And so he invites us to read Galatians and all of Paul as discourse that clarifies and corrects an implicit narrative about Jesus that is shared by Paul and his readers. And the heart of that story of Jesus is the faith of the Messiah, the new Adam, what he accomplished through his faith and his obedience. What holds this whole section together, he says, is a story in which Paul and his readers have been caught up. Christ is not only the ground of their salvation. He's not only the ground of their salvation, the basis of their salvation. That's what you're saying, Helen. When I think about my sins, the last place I want to turn is me. What do I have to do? Do I have to say a certain prayer? Do I have to say a certain chant? Do I have to go to a certain place? Do I have to attend a certain church? And that's a religious system that is not based on trusting what Christ accomplished on the cross. See, through baptism, Paul's readers have come to participate in the story of Jesus. New man, new life, all of the things of the new creation. So the new story takes the place of the old story. This is my comments. The old story began with the first Adam. The new story begins with the last Adam. That's the point. So let's talk about it. The first Adam. Let's go back to flannel, uh, flannel graphs in, in Sunday school, right? First off, he was 100% human, right? So we're dealing with a human being. He heard the word of God. Now, what's the desired response on God's part from any human being who has heard the word of God? Anybody else? Obey. Say it. Obey. Obey. So the first Adam had what he needed to develop faith in God, which is more than a mental assent. It is a trust, not only a trust, but it is a trust upon which I build my life, upon which I decide to take certain actions and to not take other actions, right? That's how faith affects us. And so how did Adam respond, the first Adam? A lack of faith. How do we know he lacked faith? He what? Okay, but before that, he disobeyed. he disobeyed. Disobedience is an indicator that you do not have faith. And so what did that cause? How did he affect God's creation? Well, he introduced, if I understand the story correctly, he introduced physical death into God's creation. 
And the fear of death, what does the Hebrew writer say the fear of death does to every single human being? Holds us in slavery. We talked about this in the very early part of the quarter, the classes. So Martin Luther says this. After sin entered the world, Scripture describes man, mankind, as so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical, but even spiritual goods for his own purposes. And in all things, seeks only himself. My silly illustration is, hand a picture to any person with a hundred people in it, and what are they going to look for? If they're in the picture, right? Oh, you know, how did I look that day? Was my nose, you know, did I have a pimple? We are very self-absorbed. And that's, you know, it's, it's not a criticism. It's just a statement of fact. Jesus said this in, in, in Luke 11, right? When he taught him about prayer. He said, look, guys, you know, you're dealing with somebody who's not like you, okay? Who among you as a father isn't going to give good things to his son? And then the statement that just kind of zings by us and we miss it, he says, if you being evil, he's not criticizing us. He's just stating fact. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your father in heaven? See, this, this, this disobedience of the first Adam affected all of us. Okay, how did it do? Okay, he turned God's paradise into a hostile envi environment. But notice, this is key. I'm reading a book right now that's just opening my eyes to this. It's, I don't remember the author, but it's, it's the, um, the, the last, the eschatological Adam as, as explained in the Gospels. What did the last Adam say to the thief on, on the cross? Where? What is the last Adam doing? He's restoring God's creation. God withdrew, taking his grace with him. Thus, the first creation became characterized by the first Adam's response to the word of God. Lack of faith and disobedience. Romans 1. Right? I mean, really, you know, we, we, we wring, our, wring our hands and pull out our hair. Some of us don't need to. It falls out by itself. You know, I want to go back to the Aussie and Harriet. You know, these guys that... And, and we act like we're surprised that people behave the way they behave. We shouldn't be surprised. They're not in Christ. What characterizes them? Lack of faith and disobedience. It's always been that way. That's the nature of this creation after the fall. So the, the last or second Adam... Yeah, I gave away my answer there, right? And, he, and here's, here's where Dawn has a problem. We're comparing the, the last Adam, 
or the last atom over here, like I said, I did this backwards in my head. We're comparing him to the first atom. The first atom is, was 100% human. What about the second atom, the last atom? What is he? He's what? 100% human. Yeah, he's 100% human. Oh, for a short time. Uh, after this time, he's on Earth. Really? Seed of woman. She had half of the deoxyribonucleic acid. So he's only 50% human. Only 50. The other percent is deity. <laughs> okay. I was reading Leroy Garrett this morning mm. about an article, and he's mm. talking about this. Jesus was tempted at all points like we, but in another verse it says, God cannot be tempted. He's thinking maybe what he emptied himself of was his divinity so he could be 100% human. That's my position. Otherwise, Hebrews makes no sense. Yeah, otherwise Hebrews makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> ribosome is just no. still a human. It's still ribosomes are still human. Yeah. So, and I mean, this is tricky, tricky stuff, but pretty serious stuff. I mean, people were people were burned at the stake. Well, when we say 100% human, are we looking at uh, physical or spiritual as well? I'm just trying to tell you what the Bible says. It's Gary, chime in here. Yes. No pressure. <laughs> I mean, if he wasn't tempted, then he wasn't tempted. I mean, if he couldn't sin, then he wasn't tempted. I believe. And if he's not a human. He didn't sin. If, there's, he, was, if he was anything less than human. He could not be an appropriate sacrifice for humankind. Thank you. However, the scripture also says, in him dwells all the fullness of the God. We're getting there. Bodily. I think, and I'll close with this, I think this is one of those things we accept by our faith that we cannot process and understand. God has done this. Alan? At times, our Western minds like either or, whereas the Hebrew mind was comfortable with yes and yes. Was Jesus 100% human? Yes. Was he still divinity? Yes. I think the Hebrew mind was comfortable with that. We we just want to push either or. Carl? Uh, the uh, I think the overuse of the uh, analogy of Jesus the sacrifice you know he had to have a perfect sacrifice sinless sacrifice of uh, for sin uh, analogy we got that it well Jesus was perfect but does that mean he never did any I mean everything was a straight A and all that's beyond he was hundred percent human and the idea that what we don't know what perfect he was what God wanted him to be. Human. human. He was human and humanly what God wanted him to be. Yeah, and my and I now keep perfection. We don't know what perfection is. Right. And I keep using this illustration. This maybe the I know it's at least the third, maybe the fourth time. But from the time he was born until the time he was crucified, he lived one hundred percent 
humanity. And I agree with, with what you're saying, the Christ him. He emptied himself of deity. He was not supernaturally zapped with faith. He learned faith the same way any other human being learns faith by the word of God. And we're going to get there in just a second. Right. How does faith come? Comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. Many times I've read he's 100% human and 100% God. Doesn't add up in human terms. Right. And we're going to get to that passage that we miss. We misunderstand Paul's point in Colossians 2 when he says the full body, the body, the Godhead dwelt in him bodily. But here, let, let's keep moving. Okay, so things are different under the second Adam, 100% human, but the second Adam offered a different response to the word of God than the first Adam. So when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was 100% human. He was having a crisis of faith to the point that the capillaries in his physical human body were bursting and he was sweating blood. Now, that's, not, that's not the response of someone who's been zapped with supernatural faith. That is the response of a human body under extreme tension and inner turmoil. And yet, where did he learn that if I can just get through this, my father will raise me from the dead? Did God zap him with that information? No. God taught him that information the same way he teaches us through the word of God. And that's exactly what Peter says. He quotes a psalm. Oh, I know that you will not leave my body to suffer decay. How did he know that? Because God whispered it in his ear? No. Because from the time he was a boy, he read it. And he chose to trust it even to the point of death as a human being. And so he offered a completely different response. He developed perfect faith. He offered perfect obedience. Even obedience, how did he learn obedience, Hebrew writer? By the things he suffered. As he as he endured this test, he was faced with another test. What does Luke tell us about his temptation? And then Satan left him until an opportune time. And that's exactly what Peter says. You haven't, and the Hebrew better says, you have not endured temptation to the point that Christ has. That's why he's our second Adam. That's why he is able to save us. So this new creation that God is has now inaugurated in Christ has a completely different characteristic than the first creation. Why? Because it has a completely different progenitor. And if you'll allow me, I'm going to put it the way I worked on it in my mind. 
So this is atom number one. This is atom number two, or the, the last atom. So this new creation is completely different than the first it, because it's characterized by a different progenitor. The person who started it, the human being who started it, did it completely differently. And once he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. See, I don't have to do what he did. I don't have to have perfect faith. I just have to get into it. See, there's the difference this, this teaching makes. It's not about my faith. My faith doesn't have to be perfect. My obedience doesn't have to be perfect because His was. All my faith has to do is get me into Him. That's where I want to be. That's what Paul says. I want to be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness that comes by the faith of Jesus Christ. And so the first Adam was the source of death to all who followed his example. And that's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Death entered the world by Adam, and death flowed to all men because all sinned. We follow the example of the first Adam, and we reap the death that he brought upon us. We follow the example, and I'll show you next week, how to, how to describe that. Pretty cool, right, Gary? Pretty cool. Jesus was put to death, buried, and resurrected. Is there any way to imitate that? Is there anywhere to follow that example? Yeah, I think it happens every time somebody gets baptized. Romans 6. Romans 6. We're going to talk about it. The second Adam is the source of salvation to all who obey him, who follow his example, Come into solidarity with him. That's exactly what baptized into Christ means. Remember, I showed you Thayer's definition. You're moved into a different location and you are now in solidarity. You are now in solidarity with a new progenitor, a new Adam. And in him is... Well, I said salvation. I meant to say life. So it would be. And this is what characterizes God's new creation. All right? So how's our proposal doing? Make sense? Start to, start to bring in some of the other more obscure teaching that Paul talks about? There's another image that's very related, and we can go through this quickly. He inaugurates a new creation. He's the progenitor. It has continuity with the first, but it takes the first in a new direction. It inaugurates the process of redeeming God's first creation and restoring it to its original design. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And notice the he is is in italics because it's not in the text. NIV got this one right. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what has come? The new creation has come. The new creation has come. Started by Adam. If you're in Christ, you're no longer in the old creation. 
where sins are counted, where law applies, where God's keeping records. You're in the new creation. Christ originates a new creation. There it is. See, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Christ is the source of God's new creation. His death, burial, and resurrection inaugurate the new age. He is the author and perfecter of human faith. <coughs> Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of, and some of your translations will say, our faith, and our faith is not in the text. It's not, he didn't perfect my faith or your faith or the faith as if the faith is some kind of religious system. He perfected as a human being, he perfected human faith. Said another way, Jesus, the last Adam, is everything that the first Adam was not. And I have in parentheses here Israel. And we'll stop on this. Let me. Because if you. And again, this is another book. So he starts with the first Adam, the Son of God. Does the first Adam get it right? No. So he brings together a new son, my son Israel. Does Israel get it right? Does any individual within Israel get it right? Not even David the king gets it right. Who gets it right? Jesus. He perfects human faith. And by doing that, he overturns everything that happened in Adam's disobedience. And he restores God's creation to exactly what God designed it to be. And guess what we're going to see next week? If you're put to death with Christ in baptism, you're raised together with Christ. So where do you, if you have been immersed into Christ, where do you live? And that's why this song, the song, this world is not my home, means so much to us, right? Oh, man, you know, people ask me, who are you going to vote for? Ah, I don't know, I'll vote. You don't seem too upset about it. What if the United States falls? What if God judges the United States? Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Can I say something? Yes. Um, I got an um, email from Bob and Marianne Stevenson, and they're asking for prayers for their granddaughter, Abigail, who is in the hospital in Sheridan, Wyoming, and I see pancreatitis. Sheraton, Wyoming, Bob and Naomi Marianne. Marianne Stevenson. Marianne Stevenson. Father, we come to you and we thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for your word. That shows us clearly what you have done, what you have accomplished, the great and, and powerful and impossible for us to accomplish feat of eliminating human sin completely and finally and re removing death from the equation and giving us life. And, and Father, as we try to 
grab a hold of that by faith, um, we lose sight of that. And so it's a whole lot easier to trust in our religiosity sometimes and our faithful attendance at a, at a gathering place than it is to really, really do the hard reflection within ourselves. Am I really trusting Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Is that really where my trust lies? Is that really where my life is built? And it's especially difficult when people face um, health issues and old age and, and all the other challenges of life. And so we lift up this couple, the Stevensons, that have asked for our prayers. We don't know all the details, but Father, will you be with, be with them at this moment? And we pray for physical relief, but more than that, I pray for a special touch of your grace that they will be able to lift their eyes above this old fallen broken creation and see you on your throne in your glory and that that might give them comfort. And I pray that same prayer for all of us who are suffering in any way from the oppression that comes from this fallen uh, broken creation. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus and to keep faith in our, in our walk and faith in our heart, trusting you that you are in control. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. See you next week. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m., as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.